Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get, Get out there and speak to your farmers today. today. Jump That's the Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Welcome to Countrywide. I'm David Clawton in Sydney. Australia's political landscape has changed and farmers are looking at the implications of a Labor government. One immediate result is a jump in the carbon price. The Labor policy is 43% uh, reduction on that same time frame out to 2030. And so... As a consequence, uh, there's an expectation that industry is either going to have to work harder at reducing their emissions or turn to Australian carbon credit units as another pathway to reduce their emissions. It's been a big week for poultry producers as well. After some tough years, they've had a win, with the ACCC going into bat for them with the two dominant meat processors. That involved us obtaining uh, a range of those contracts and looking carefully at the clauses in them and engaging with the processes about those clauses and the extent to which uh, we allege they breach the unfair contract terms laws. But let's start with the rapid expansion of solar farms across regional areas. While renewable energy is a good thing, these big solar industrial sites are taking up productive agricultural land in some places, and that could end up reducing production of food and causing some good long-term jobs to be lost. But what if solar farms could coexist with agriculture? Some farmers have had a go at grazing sheep under solar panels. New South Wales Central West Grazier Tom Warren says his flock has been thriving and even shown some improvements in wool quality. That's encouraging, but some are calling for a pause on solar developments until the science is out on whether agriculture can actually coexist with renewable energy. Hannah Jose filed this report. Dubbo farmer Tom Warren grazes around 250 sheep on 140 acres of land leased to a solar farm. He says the carrying capacity of that parcel of land has increased because of it. During the drought, we actually had the sheep on the solar farm, the same animals, the same weathers, and they were there right through the drought except for the last three months, and we only had to feed them for three months right at the end. Other than that, they were self-supporting in the solar farm, for a number of reasons. Firstly, the solar farms were shading the area over the top of the ground so it wasn't drying out as much. Mm. But the other big part was that condensation coming off the panels in the morning and overnight was leaving a little strip of, of green grass growing in, on every array of panels so that during the drought they were actually eating green grass. Right, and how much has the carrying capacity um, increased? Oh, I'd say probably gone up 25%. The wool, the wool quantity hasn't uh, increased, but the wool quality has. Because of the uh, conditions that the sheep are living in, where it's sort of relatively clean and, and uh, without sort of contamination, without birds and that sort of thing, and without dust, there's very, very little contamination of the wool. And they're sort of on short green sort of grass virtually all the time and they're protected from the sun as well. They camp underneath the solar uh, panels. What have been some of the challenges in having the solar panels and the sheep together? I think you mentioned their wool sometimes gets stuck in the panels. Well, that, that's the only um, issue that I've confronted and I've actually changed my shearing processes now. I shear them every eight months because 
when the wall gets longer and and you get a sort of a, a bit of a wet spell and it's a bit sticky, they can become, as it, as you said, tangled in the uh, drives that change the angle of the panels as it follows the sun. Um, and I've had a couple of sheep that have been injured in that way. But um, since then, I've actually swapped over to having them shorn every eight to nine months. Mm. And um, that's resolved that situation. Macquarie University Senior Lecturer Dr Madeline Taylor specialises in energy policy and landholder rights. She says research should also be done on the co-location of solar farms with cropping enterprises. We need to look at each solar project and its potential for co-location on a case-by-case basis. So we certainly can't say here's all this evidence for for sheep grazing and that should be a copy and paste transplant to any form of agro-PV. Not at all. What's important here is ongoing studies and regulation crafted around different forms of farming. So sheep on the one hand, but then looking at at cropping and, and particular crops as well on the other. So what's really needed moving forward, I think, is for solar developers to work in tandem with the government and landholders to create a bespoke plan for agri-PV. Wagga MP Joe McGurr has called for a moratorium on solar farm developments until the government commissioned review is complete. He says the idea of agriculture and solar farms coexisting without any impact on the land or production has been oversold. Certainly in our part of the world down here, we've got a number of large solar factories uh, proposed, uh, 300, 600 hectares you know, on sloping land that's arable or intensely grazed. And uh, apart from the, the fact that they look ghastly for the neighbours and are going to affect the tourist potential of the region... Um, landowners on neighbouring properties here are very concerned that that's going to have a, a very bad effect in terms of dry land salinity, so that's going to affect the quality of the land. And they're also very sceptical that uh, not much more than a handful of sheep will be able to run on these properties. Dr McGurr agreed that more research into co-location is needed, but it should take place before the developments are approved. Let's do the research, let's have the discussion Let's work out the issues right now and then do the developments. At the moment, what's happening is we're having the developments being done simply because they're close to a power source. And the conversation and the discussion and the research is going to come later. And my concern is it'll be too late. Wagga MP Joe McGurr ending that report from Hannah Jose. Rural and farming lobby groups around Australia are taking stock of the federal election result and analysing the new Labor government's election promises. To take us through some of the wash-up, Warwick Long is speaking with National Rural Reporter in Canberra, Cath O'Sullivan. Uh, it is a bit of a waiting game to see actually who is going to be the minister responsible for portfolios such as water and environment. Those were held by Terry Butler for Labor, who was ousted by a Green in her Brisbane seat of Griffith. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see who takes charge in terms of Murray-Darling Basin policy. We know that Labor has a policy to see more water returned to the environment or to see 450 gigalitres of water committed. And in terms of Western Australia, Labor's policy to ban live sheep exports there obviously didn't have much of an influence on the vote in Western Australia because we saw such a uh, I saw it described as a savage swing to Labor in the West but obviously uh, very keen for that industry to find out exactly what plans Labor has for a transition away from that trade and and how they think they're going to replace that 
sector, which was worth close to $100 million last year. Yeah, and I can't imagine anyone would have thought Terry Butler would be losing her seat, but is there any idea on who could or who has the knowledge in the environment and particularly the water space too, with the Murray-Darling being a hot issue and one where Labor has a defined policy? Uh, any thought on who could be taking well, that portfolio? It's interesting, isn't it? We know that Tony Burke and Penny Wong have both held the portfolio for Labor in the past. They've moved on, I guess you would say, from from that portfolio. Um, there have been names put forward. Victorian Senator Raf Giacconi is a backbencher. He's only had, I think, one term of parliament. He's shown a real interest in issues to do with agriculture. He turns up at a lot of industry events. Um, others, like maybe Senator Murray Watt, who's in Queensland, he's had the portfolio for uh, resources and northern Australia. Um, he's very good at talking to people that are involved in regional and rural issues. Um, but you've got this thing going on with Labor where the the factions are at play and, and it will be up to Anthony Albanese's caucus to ensure that um, they have satisfactory representation from um, their various factions. What are mm. the policies that we know about for, from Labor that they took to the election, particularly for agriculture? Okay, well, it was quite interesting that Labor didn't really announce um, any agriculture-specific policies right up until the very end. Whenever we approached Julie Collins, the shadow minister, and said, you know, last time Labor had this idea and that idea, putting a floor in the farm gate milk price, or, you know, she kept saying, we'll have more to say, we'll have more to say, we'll have more to say. And she didn't have a lot more to say until right up to the very end of the election campaign when we learned that Labor does want to put an end to live sheep exports. Um, one of the most significant areas of difference, I guess you could say, between the Coalition and between Labor is on the Australian agriculture visa. This is something the Coalition promised. Um, it hasn't really delivered in full yet. We know there's a memorandum of understanding with Vietnam to bring workers from that country to come and work on Australian farms and uh, in forestry and fisheries as well. Labor says it will honour that MOU, but it's not going to ask any other countries to sign up and participate in this Australian agriculture visa program. It's effectively scrapping it and saying we, we can fill the farm worker void by bringing in workers under the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, which, of course, uh, Australian farmers have already had access to workers from the Pacific. Scrapping the agriculture visa, ending the live sheep export industry and some commitments around getting the additional 450 gigalitres of water under the Murray-Darling Basin plan. We don't know much else beyond that, do we? We don't, but I think that the new incoming water and agriculture ministers are certainly going to have their work cut out for them. It's a really interesting time for um, for the industry and in terms of the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Um, we've just got a couple of years to go before major water savings deadlines. It's highly, 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 highly unlikely that those targets are going to be met. So there's going to be some really tough, difficult decisions, water recovery and how we share water in Australia's largest river system. You know, taxpayers have already stumped up $13 billion on this Murray-Darling Basin plan. Uh, so there's going to be really difficult decisions to make there. And we know that Labor supports the industry's goal of farming becoming a $100 billion sector by 2030. It is edging closer, but there are so many challenges Um just think about foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease are uh, just to the north of the country. Biosecurity is a great concern. The ABC's National Rural Reporter, Kath Sullivan, speaking with Warwick Long. 
One immediate response to the change of government was seen in the carbon market. Australian carbon credits jumped 20%. Matt Brand spoke to Dr Tim Moore from Regenco to get a better understanding on why the price of a carbon credit has increased so quickly. The results of the, the election have had a, you know, obviously a material change on, uh, on carbon price in the last couple of days. And that very much boils down to sentiment around about uh, how the new Labor government is going to implement carbon policy and, and emissions reduction policy. So the previous government uh, had a policy of minus 26 to minus 28 percent of emissions on two, 2005 levels by 2030. The, the Labor policy is 43 percent. Uh, reduction on that same time frame out to 2030. And so as a consequence, uh, there's an expectation that industry is either going to have to work harder at reducing their emissions or turn to Australian carbon credit units as another pathway to reduce their emissions. It's a sudden boost to the demand for carbon credits. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, effectively, we're anticipating an increased demand as a result of new government policy. So right now, at roughly $36 per credit, where does Australia sit in terms of the global carbon credit market? Uh, Australia would have to be seen as some of the cheapest uh, carbon credits on on, um, regulated markets around the world. Um, Sort of oscillating around about $100 Australian for the the EU market. Uh, New Zealand's around about $60 Australian. Last time I looked, um, South Korea is, is well advanced in pricing on Australia. And so, you know, for those benchmark credit types, uh, Australia is very cheap in comparison to international prices. Like any industry, I'm sure those involved in carbon farming just want certainty. What would that look like for those in this industry? In particular, from from our perspective, for the landholders, um, what we'd really love to see is uh, TLC from the government, so transparency, longevity and certainty. So um, having those aspects in in carbon and climate policy is really going to make our investment decisions and long-term decisions by landholders in how they manage their land and assets um, with regards to carbon markets, right? So these are long-term decisions for landholders and carbon project developers such as ourselves. So that sort of long-term view of what policy is going to be. Um, transparency about how government's going to make decisions and that gives us certainty to, to then go and invest. So um, changing policy, as we've seen with you know, Minister Taylor's intervention in the market, suppresses price or changes price and, and that removes confidence in the market, which makes investment much more uncertain. So um, longevity in policy decisions and transparency around those processes is going to be critical. Dr Tim Moore, Head of Science for Regenco. I'm David Clawton and you're listening to Countrywide. From the top end to Tassie, Countrywide on ABC Radio. To your morning coffee now. It wasn't so long ago that if you wanted milk, the choice was full cream or maybe high-low, if you're lucky. But today, plant-based milk alternatives are gaining in popularity and could make up to half the drinks in Australian cafes quite soon. As Angus McIntosh reports, one alternative milk in particular is leading the charge. If you're an Aussie barista, milk isn't just milk anymore. And when an order comes in for a plant-based milk, there's a lot to keep in mind. Some of the easier ones I would say are oat and almond. Soy is probably one of the harder ones to deal with. Dalen was a young barista fresh out of high school when oat milk became an option at this cafe in Williams, two hours southeast of Perth. And it wasn't long before customers noticed. 
probably a year or so ago, halfway through the year I think. Um, it just started really taking over. It was like a month or so and oat was one of the really big ones that everyone was getting. Last year, a survey of 900 Australian cafes found a quarter of customers chose plant-based milk. Those trends paint a promising picture for the big three plant milks sold today. The latest numbers show almond is on top, soy is slowly falling in the market and oat is rising fast. Cafe market analyst Sean Edwards says altogether they could make up half of the cafe drinks market within two or three years. You know, the growth rate's been pretty incredible, especially for plant milks like oat milk. Oat will be the number one very shortly. So in the next, say, six to 12 months, you'll find oat will take over from almond. It emulates dairy probably better than most other plant milks. And in Williams, oat milk isn't just sold in cafes. The Wheatbelt town is also home to oat growers and a processing mill. It's where Ben Cole runs a company turning these local oats into milk for cafes and supermarkets around the country. For now, much of the processing takes place offshore, but he's got plans to turn local oats into milk without ever leaving the state. The plant that we want to produce is at least 20 million litres per annum. We think in Australia now there's at least 100 million litres of oat milk and plant-based milks being consumed. And what we're seeing is this upward trend of anywhere from 10 to 20% uptick in plant-based milk. Just a few kilometres out of town, farmer Steve Ford is seeding his third season of oats destined for the milk market. He hopes premium markets like oat milk can help sustain more farmers in his region, particularly his four sons. If those premiums are there and are large enough, it will give us farmers the opportunity to perhaps investigate these principles of farming further and, and produce food hopefully with more integrity. And that will be more intensive work-wise, but still profitable. And I've said to you, Angus, I've got four boys, and if they all want to go farming, we may have to look at those things going forward. Steve Ford's oats are milled just down the road from Williams, but the final processing to make oat milk currently takes place in Italy before the cartons are shipped back to Australian supermarkets and cafes. It will cost Wide Open Agriculture $20 million to build a facility in WA that's capable of doing the job onshore. And until it can, dairy farmers are questioning the environmental credentials of a product that's marketed as the sustainable option. Ian Noakes is dairy president of WA Farmers. Why would you drink these? This is not even made in Western Australia. It's not even processed here whereas our milk is picked up every day off-farm. It's fresh and it's healthy, and we will be environmentally sustainable. So you go, well, why wouldn't you keep drinking cow's milk? For years, dairy farmers have contested the use of words like milk and creamy for plant-based products. This February, a Senate inquiry recommended the ACCC restrict the use of meat labels for plant proteins, but it stopped short of recommending the same for non-dairy milks. Do Australians have a moral or ethical responsibility to support dairy farmers and is that different to the responsibility they might have for other kinds of farmers? No, I don't believe so. I think we have to show that we are responsible custodians of our land and we are definitely making changes on, on climate policies. Farmers are very well aware they have to lower their carbon footprint. ABS data shows plant milk's rise isn't coming at the expense of dairy. In the last three financial years, Australians' dairy milk consumption has only fallen around 2%.
Sean Edwards says in cafes, both camps are actually increasing. I don't think dairies lost ground in volume, but they've lost market share. I mean, there's been some massive coffee consumption going over, over COVID from you know, working from home. home. The home market's been really strong. Whatever it's labelled and wherever it's sold, demand for plant milk isn't slowing down and farmers like Steve Ford don't want it to. His farm will only supply a fraction of the oats needed for WA's first oat milk processing plant, planned to open by December next year. I think that's a pretty big pie out there. It's more and more people to feed and I don't see a problem with it. But What do you want to do? Ban plant-based milks? It's never going to happen. If the consumer wants plant-based milks, if it can be grown in WA and processed in WA and create opportunities for WA people, that has to be a great thing. That's oat farmer Stephen Ford ending that report. You can read more about what the plant-based milk market means for farmers at ABC Rural Online. Now to a story that uncovers some of the murky dealings behind the chicken breast on your plate after an investigation by the ACCC into the use of unfair contract terms in the chicken meat industry, some of Australia's processors have agreed to make some changes. The ACCC said the terms allowed processors to vary growers' supply arrangements, impose additional costs or require them to make significant capital investments. ACCC Deputy Chair Mick Keogh told Michael Condon that the industry is willing to make some changes. This um, arose from our perishable agricultural goods inquiry last year where we undertook a further detailed investigation of contracts in the chicken meat industry. Um, That involved us obtaining uh, a range of those contracts and looking carefully at the clauses in them and engaging with the processors about those clauses and the extent to which uh, we allege they breached the unfair contract terms law. So... Um, We have made some progress uh, in changing some of those and uh, that's a a good start. But growers too, we've heard a number of growers, we've spoken to them on the program uh, uh, last year saying they've been forced to the wall, they've been forced out. They they say that they were uh, very tight controls on uh, the feed. They had to, even in some cases, had to buy feed back from... uh, uh, the uh, the processes and things like that. Also, uh, really strict conditions as well on sizes and things like that to, uh, made it uh, impossible for them to make a profit. Are they the sorts of things that you've heard from growers? Yes, there's two there's two issues. One is what's written into the contracts mm. and what growers sign up for, and then the second issue is whether those terms and conditions breach uh, the unfair contract terms law, which is part of the law that the ACCC um, administers. Um, As um, some might be aware, the way the law is written at the moment, there is no penalty associated with having an unfair clause in your contract. Um, What can happen, though, is a court can uh, declare that particular clause void. Um, uh, Unfortunately, that involves uh, fairly detailed legal processes and, and potential delays in the courts. So we've been negotiating with the processors and encouraging them on a voluntary basis to uh, adjust those clauses or remove those clauses um, rather than go down the court process at this stage. And the other point, of course, is that um, proposed reforms to that law, which would include broadening its application and imposing penalties for having unfair contract terms, 
um, was tabled in the parliament uh, just before the election and the incoming government has indicated that it is positively disposed towards proceeding with those reforms. So the environment around unfair contract terms in business-to-business um, contracts is perhaps likely to change in the future. ACCC Deputy Chair Mick Keogh. And while Australian farmers are facing many challenges, it's not nearly as bad as things are in the Ukraine. They're fighting a war with Russia and there's death and destruction all around. The irrigation water is turned off. Farming fields are laced with mines and an export powerhouse has been reduced to subsistence farming. Louis Chermside runs a mixed farming operation at Kerrang in Victoria, but he's also farmed and lived in the Ukraine. He's been speaking with farmers there and he told Warwick Long how things are going. Look, it's just a terrible situation, and um, so with the agriculture, with you know, start off with tomatoes because that's where most of my contacts were from, and what I was doing over there. There'll be pretty much no tomato production this year, except for the farmers are trying to grow a few hectares so they can feed people in the local towns. The Russians control all of the irrigation, and they cut the water off to the farmers. And so those farmers now are trying to dig wells so they can actually have water for the local villages. The city of Nikolaev, which is where they've got a, a front, they've taken Kherson. Nikolaev's about 40 k's away. They're about 20 k's from Nikolaev. It's a city of about a million people. And they have that water for about five weeks. So the guys running the tomato factories are actually set, setting up points in the city, about 10 points, where people can go and um, pick up water with buckets and that sort of thing. He said in the fields, there's mines, there's ammunition, there's destroyed military equipment, farming equipment, and um, he said it's a really, really tough situation. Those farms in that area, he said a lot of them won't survive another year because they just can't handle not getting that income and the money that they've lost. So it's not only a fight against the Russians in terms of the military, it's a it's a fight for survival for everyone in that area to get things like water, to have things like money and to, to literally exist. Well, in, in the Kherson region, which is occupied, baby potatoes, for instance, are pretty much free because nobody's got the money to, to buy them. But probably the critical thing, you know, that can affect the rest of the world is basically grain supply. All the ports are closed because there's no access to the Black Sea. And so even if they can get the diesel and the transport, they're not going to be able to physically transport grain out of Ukraine because there's, my mate's got trucks sitting in, in the queue at the border for five days either way. So, so it takes five days to get a truck across the Romanian border, which is, which is a friendly border. Yes, yeah, just, he just showed it. I've seen a video of them just lined up miles and miles of trucks. And that's not five days to get there. That's five days at the border, plus how long you've got to go internally in Ukraine and then externally from Romania. It sounds really dire. Can I, I stay with the tomato industry, which is what you know the most. Can you give us an idea? How big is the tomato industry in Ukraine? It's 800,000 tonnes, comprising of four major factories. Two of the factories are in occupied territory. And the other two factories are smack bang where the Russians are trying to um, push the Ukrainians back so they can take Nikolaev and then try to move on towards Odessa. 
So the the industry that you know and the contacts that you have, they're literally from the area that is the, the battleground at the moment or just mere kilometres from the battleground? Basically, the battlefront, the tomatoes are on either side. So all the way from Kherson through to Nikolaev was just lots and lots of tomato fields and other vegetable fields. So it's all had irrigation and that water's, that water's cut off. So they're trying to grow a few tomatoes between Nikolaev and Odessa that is for sustenance rather than for processing. We've seen footage actually from Ukraine about where Russian soldiers have been forced back or where they've moved on from of, of agricultural fields being laced with, with things like mines and, and uh, unexploded munitions and things like that. Have you heard stories like that from, from your contacts? Well, he made a point of telling me that. And uh, this, this is just another obstacle um, that if you're going through with a with a couple of header or tractor or something like this, you've got a chance of running across a mine that's been designed to take out a tank. So agricultural machinery is not going to stand up to it. Louis Chernside, a cropping and tomato grower in Victoria. And that's Countrywide for this week. I'm David Clawton. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio.